Okay. Today is Sunday of Kedoshim. So in a leap year, generally, the two portions of Achrimos and Kedoshim are separate. And in a non-leap year, they're generally together. So we are in chapter 19, verse 1. And God spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the entire assembly of the children of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for holy am I, God, your God. So this special portion, the special Torah portion of Kedoshim, was, as Rashi explains, spoken to every single Jew. That's what it means by saying, speak to the entire assembly. All of the Jewish people were here. Now you could say, well, every portion of Torah, Moses taught the entire Jewish people. So what is different here, that we're adding the words, all the assembly of the Jewish people. So what Rashi is saying here is, here, every single Jew had to be here. Meaning, let's say the previous portion, Achrimos, Moses was also teaching to the entire Jewish people. But if you had a headache that day, or something else happening, you didn't show up, that was permissible, you missed out. But this portion, just like by the giving of the Torah, and just by, by the end of the five books, there's another portion as well like that, where every single Jew was there. Now, the, by the giving of the Torah, of course, we understand why every single Jew had to be there. And at the end, also, it's a general oath to the entire Jewish people. All the Jews are swearing their relationship to God. So that's why they all had to physically be there. But why here? Why in this Torah portion? Why is it different than any other Torah portion? So Rashi explains, because the majority of the essentials of Torah are in this Torah portion, such as honoring parents, observing the Sabbath, desisting from robbery, not taking revenge or bearing a grudge, loving your fellow as yourself. These are the essentials of Torah. So since these essentials are all in this one actually rather short Torah portion, Every single Jew had to be there. That is the opinion Rashi is following. In the Talmud, this is actually a dispute. Why did every single Jew have to be there? And others say it's because this portion's mitzvah, the commandments of this portion, actually parallel the Ten Commandments. So just as by the Ten Commandments, every single Jew had to be there, also with this Torah portion, every single Jew had to be there. You shall be holy. What does it mean to be holy? So Rashi explains holy means separate from immorality, which Rashi calls arayas. Arayas are the serious sins of sexual immorality, the most serious sins. Incest, adultery, relationships with a woman due to her menstruation. And also avera, which is general, all other sins of a sexual nature. Of course, they're both significant, but we have the arayas, which are the most severe. That if a child was born from those relationships, the child has a different spiritual status. And then a other sin of a sexual nature, which is also very significant, but doesn't have the same repercussions. Now, why? Why are we saying holiness is specifically in this area of sexual immorality? So Rashi says, because we see that's how it works in Torah, that whenever you find a restriction of sexual immorality, you're going to find juxtaposed to that the concept of holiness as Rashi brings various proofs. Verse 3, Every man shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall observe my Sabbath. I am God, your God. So it says every man. Hmm. So either, Rashi says, every man is just 
meaning singular. Each single one of you, each person, shall revere his parents. Or, on the Midrash level, it says every man. Maybe it only means a man and not a woman. How do we know women are supposed to revere their parents? Because, as it's written in the Torah, every man shall revere, shall fear, revere, is actually written in the plural. And in the plural, it's generic and would imply men and women. It's not gender specific. And since it's plural, it means more than one. So in other words, ish, it's a little simpler in the Hebrew, but ish, the man, maybe makes me think only men have to revere their parents. But it should say, each man should revere in the singular revere. Each man, he singularly shall revere his father and mother. It doesn't say that. It says, each man, they shall revere his father and mother. So why the they, so they, plural, now again, the plural is masculine, but if you have men and women in a group, and we're saying all these people, men and women, we use a masculine form. So that doesn't necessarily imply women, but also could, could allow women to be part of that plural. But the fact that it's plural, that it's two, already means, wait, the man was singular. So who's the two? What's the plural here? I mean, plural could also mean 50, but at least it must mean two. At least it's more than one. So that gives you the option of two, two different types. So the first singular was a man, so the other different type is the woman. But then we say, all right, so if that's the case, and if really the commandment is on men and women to revere their parents, why does it say a man? It didn't have to use the term man. So that does seem to imply uh, a special emphasis on men. So Rashi concludes, because sometimes a woman doesn't have the ability to honor her parents, meaning there will be a conflict for a married woman between her husband and her parents, she's supposed to put her husband first. So a man always has the ability to honor his parents, but a woman doesn't always. And that's why, even though she does have the commandment to honor her parents, and she must revere, there's actually time about revering, fearing, that form of giving honor of the fear end, because there's the honor end and the fear end, as Rashi is going to clarify soon. But because sometimes she can't, that's why it more more emphasizes the man. And the next Rashi, it says this idea of revere. What does it mean, revere? Usually we think of it as honor your parents, as it says in the Ten Commandments, but here it says revere. So what does that mean? So revering means the idea of fearing like you cannot sit in his place you cannot speak in his place you cannot contradict him but honoring is doing those acts like feeding him giving him to drink dressing him putting on his shoes escorting him in escorting him out now rashi will explain this a little bit later on this verse but i'm putting it here which if you were reading inside, you'll see it actually later. But because in this Rashi, Rashi actually focuses on the order of the parents. In the previous Rashi, we were talking about men versus women. Here we're talking about father versus mother. And we see here when it's talking about revering, it says mother and father. When it spoke about honoring, 
it says father and mother. So we already had that because we had the Ten Commandments already. So the question is why? But the Ten Commandments, we're talking about honoring, we put father first. But here we're talking about revering, we put mother first. So Rashi says because the nature of a child is to give more reverence to the father and more honor to the mother. So since we automatically revere more our father, the Torah puts mother first. And since we automatically honor more our mother, the Torah puts father first. And again, later, like in two Rashi's, Rashi clarifies what does that mean. So revering is like, like the don't do things that would negate his honor, like don't contradict, don't sit in his place. And while honoring is doing those things for the parents, like taking care of them. So you naturally have the feeling to take care of your mother, so therefore it's put father first. And you naturally have a feeling of, feeling of respecting your father, and therefore it puts mother first. Now, it's interesting because in this verse, which is saying this very foundational commandment of revering parents, it also says a very foundational commandment of observing the Sabbath. Why are they in the same verse? So Rashi says they're in the same verse because even though I tell you you have to revere your parents, if your parents tell you to desecrate the Sabbath, don't listen. And you say, wait a minute, how do I know that's the juxtaposition? Maybe the opposite. Maybe the juxtaposition would be you have to revere your parents so much that that precedes honoring the Sabbath. How does Rashi know that that's what it means? Yes, we know there's a connection, but how does Rashi know that's the connection? Because the verse concludes, I'm God. My word comes first. As Rashi says, I'm God. You and your father are both obligated in my honor. And therefore, the juxtaposition of revering the parents and not just when the Sabbath means revere your parents, but not at the expense of Sabbath. So that final phrase, I am God, is what clarifies the juxtaposition of the reverence of the parents versus the honoring of the Sabbath. Next verse. Do not turn to the idols. A molten God you shall not make for yourself. I am God, your God. Don't turn to idols to worship them. So the term used here for idols in the Hebrew is elilim. Elilim is from the root word al, which means nothing. Nothing. Because an idol is a non-entity. So first it talks about elilim, non-entities. And then the verse continues, and molten gods. So wait, how do we suddenly make them gods? When we said they're elilim, which means al, which means nothingness. Because first they're not entities. But if you follow them, you make them to be gods. So that's why we begin with elilim, not entities. And then we call them molten gods. You shall not make for yourselves Make, do not make for yourselves for others, meaning you make for others, and at the same time, others can make it for you. So a person could say, well, no, maybe that's not what the verse means. Maybe it means don't make for yourself. Why are we saying the verse means even others can't make for you? But the verse can't mean that because the verse already told us that. We had a previous verse that told us that. So therefore, this has to be saying something extra which is this new additional detail of the laws that both you can't make for others and others can't make for you. Sort of like, oh, well, I'm not going to make for myself, but we'll switch. I'll make for you, you make for me. No, this verse prohibits that as well. Verse 5, when you slaughter a sacrifice of a peace offering to God, you shall slaughter it to appease for you. Now, what are we saying here? 
we're getting into here is the idea of eating the sacrifice in the appropriate time and in the appropriate place. So every sacrifice has many, many laws with the sacrifices. They were, the function of a sacrifice was carbon is the root word of karov, to bring one close to God. The sacrifices, depending on what the sacrifice was for, either brought atonement or brought down sustenance or simply was a gift to God to bring one close to God. So therefore, if you're doing this for God, for this relationship, or for atonement, or for drawing down the blessings, it has to be done God's way. And each one was very specific where it was sacrificed, all the laws about where it could be eaten, if there was eating involved, and when it could be eaten. So both, there was the obligation to do it right, and there was the obligation that during the time of the sacrificing, the priest who's sacrificing it has to be intending to do it right. That if the priest would be thinking as he's slaughtering it, oh, I'm going to eat this in two days, this steak, so to speak. Well, that's forbidden. Generally, these types of offerings you ate that day, night, and the next day. So if you offered it on Monday, you have Monday, Monday night, what we call Monday night, and Tuesday. By Tuesday night, you would no longer be allowed to eat it. Most sacrifices, obviously, some sacrifices were less. And, you know, every sacrifice is different. That's the general assumption we're saying here in these types of sacrifices, because these are shlumen. Peace sacrifices, what was a day, a night, and a day. So if the priest is thinking to eat it later, even if the auntie doesn't, he's thinking he's going to eat it on Wednesday, and then he actually eats it Monday afternoon. It still completely invalidates the offering. So the portion, the purpose of this verse is to teach us that when it's being slaughtered, it has to be slaughtered with the intention to eat it within the time that's going to be stated in the following verse. You could say, well, maybe that's not the point. Maybe this is actually to tell us the times. Why are we assuming the priest is going to be thinking wrong and we're telling him don't think wrong? But it can't be to tell us the times because we already learned that previously. So you shall slaughter to appease for you, meaning the appeasing means the appeasing, the, the nachas, the contentment, the closeness in your relationship to God. It should be as God wants it. Because if you think a thought that invalidates it, either I'm going to eat it in the wrong time or I'm going to eat it in the wrong place, well, it's not going to achieve its purpose. This is not going to be a nachas to God. This is not going to be appeasement and a deepening of a relationship with God or bringing down blessings or atonement. Nothing's going to happen if you're not doing it as God wants. In other words, to create the relationship with God that you're hoping, you have to do it his way. So when we're seeing here, actually... This whole idea of lertzonchem, that should be to your will, on the simple level, of course, means we want to do it as God wills, for it to be a appeasement, an atonement, a closeness between you and God. Our rabbis actually learned to a law, a specific law, also from this idea of lertzonchem, because ratzon means will, which means everything has to be done willfully. If someone did something unintentional in this process that actually invalidates the whole offering. If someone waved a knife and happened to cut the throat of the animal, it didn't count. Why? Because it wasn't willful. 